Welcome to the Eye of Terror. Hi, and welcome to episode 13 of the Eye of Terror podcast. I'm George. And I'm Alec. And we play 40K. Welcome to episode 13. This is going to be probably the longest episode that we've had today <laughs> uh, because we have a special guest, Jonathan Hartman, will be coming on later on in the show to talk about painting. And then we got into a pretty epic game of Inquisimunda, which is the inquisitorial variant of Necromunda. And that was a lot of fun. So we'll talk about that later. But first, rumors. Indeed. Or not really rumors. Well, not rumors. Confirmations. Confirmations. At this point, you guys have probably seen that uh, Curse of the Wolfen is coming out, a new campaign book for the our favorite Vikings, the Space Wolves. It's, and it's going to be against the um, Some chaos purest, <laughs> the purists of chaos, chaos demons. Yeah, and it looks like uh, it's about the legend of the 13th company, a chapter of the Space Wolves that went into the warp and now has emerged 13 or 10,000 years later. And some of them might be werewolves. So they're chaos werewolves, but good chaos werewolves, we think. Yeah, we're either going to you... be turning all of 40K into Twilight <laughs> or Underworld. <laughs> Let's see which way GW goes. We've got space vampires Turned versus space werewolves. Oh, man. That, that would be the campaign I'd want, I'd want yeah. to see. Blood yeah, Angels versus, versus Space, space wolves. wolves. That would be the best. <laughs> that would be cool. Yeah. Uh, but the new models, yeah, I know you haven't seen them, Alec, but the new models um, look amazing. Everything they've taken from Age of Sigmar in the way they're modeling characters now. And, yeah. Yeah. They're just upgrading all of the miniatures, and they look super detailed and super awesome. And I, the um, sneak peek we've gotten at the White Dwarf cover, which I think is coming out next week, it looks like looks like uh, Logan from um, what's his name, the superhero. Oh, oh Wolverine. Wolverine. He looks yeah. like Wolverine. <laughs> like, one, <laughs> like one of the space wolves looks like Wolverine. Yeah, you know? the. Uh, he's, in, he's in half werewolf mode or full werewolf mode. Who knows? It seems it seems like the models have gotten a lot more dynamic recently. They have. Uh, they're they're jumping. They're you know in the air. They're like attacking. Yeah, um, like mid swing or mid shot. Yeah. Ending. Yeah. Good on you, GW. You're really. Yeah upped your game in terms of your um, plastic. It looks fantastic and your um, design looks amazing. So we're hap we're happily um, following your lead and spending more money because you make cooler stuff. Yay. Yay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, a bunch of new Age of Sigmar stuff's coming out. We don't care. <laughs> we don't care. Uh, it's a fine game. Yeah, for... I mean, I don't, I just, yeah, I just don't have. No offense to anyone who does. You're cool, guys. Don't worry. No, no, the, come on. That that sounded oh. like you're putting him down or something. Oh, I'm sorry then. No, that's okay. The, I don't think I don't think the, I think it's a small and shrinking community anyway. So Oh my god. <laughs> <laughs> the other the other thing I saw that came is coming out is the new another confirmation, not even a rumor, but yeah. it's the new um Alpha Legion upgrade kits from Forge World. Ooh, yes, and Oh I'm... man, they look cool. My favorite chaos legion. Why don't you start an alpha legion? You've got, you've got, I mean, you've got chaos marine. You like chaos space marines, but um, there's no rules. There's no. no are there no rules? rules? I guess there are no rules. Well, yet. Remember the those chapter tactics would be the. I yeah. just, it's just oh, I, there's nothing like that. So I don't. Yeah, there's nothing that would really give it a weight the alpha legion flavor beyond. I'd have to play. We'd have to play like 30k in order to do. Um, alpha legion army 
Okay. Because they actually have like dedicated rules for the Alpha Legion. Oh, um, we got the models for 30K. We got the whole freaking we do. Trail we do. of Calf box. We got the, 40 tactical marines. The only thing the only thing that we are lacking is the massive Forge World rule books. Oh yeah. That's right. <laughs> There's just that. And you know, <laughs> just just hundreds just, of dollars worth of rule books just from a, Forge World. Just a few of those. Don't worry, guys. It's fine. Yeah, yeah so I guess this is sort of the new Alpha Legion upgrade. It looks sort of like a hit team. Yeah. Going in there. Um, yeah, they have the. I think they're meant to, to infiltrate and then take out the warlords of uh, opposing armies. Very Alpha Legion y. Very Alpha Legion. Um, but the models look cool and the colors are like, like this blue green. Yeah, they are. Scintillating them. blue green. Yeah. Not the, not the stealthiest, to be perfectly frank, Alpha oh. Legion. I don't know, guys. It's a. Uh, <laughs> Well, I think at the by the time you've seen them coming, they've yeah. already done their work. Yeah, right. So, so it won't matter. They can they can be they can be hazard stripe yellow, whatever. You know, it doesn't matter at that point. Infiltrators, yeah. Uh, but the Alpha Legion does have, I think, some of the coolest looking um, upgrade kits in Forge World. Have you seen the Contemptor, the Alpha Legion Contemptor? Uh, yeah, I did actually see oh, that man. one. Man, got snakes really, all over it. Yeah, it looks, that looks so cool. Yeah, it looks awesome. It's probably the best looking Contemptor there, yeah. except for the Iron Hands one, which I really love. Oh, the Iron Hands one's also cool. They're Iron Hands. They're very yeah. good with that sort of thing. Okay, some hobby progress. Uh, finally, I think I'm now finished with all of the Tau stuff that I own in terms of the models that I, that I actually have. I've opened all my Tau boxes and I've actually built all the models. The last piece of it was the Devilfish, mm-hmm. which I completed last night. Yes. And five Breachers. Yeah, and the there. breachers look cool. I I didn't expect to like them as much. I you know I thought okay, I'm just gonna have breachers because they're like they're kind of cool, and I, I just want to have like a complete set of troops. Yeah. I've got the fire warriors. I'm never gonna get crude because they're ugly chicken men. <laughs> <laughs> but I needed breachers. But I needed breachers. Yeah. Um, so I made five breachers, and they turned out to look really good. And I want to make more of them now because they look so good. Yeah. Oh. Yeah, they they look cool. Um, perhaps on look though, in the fluff though, they feel very um, sweaty. They look very. They feel very, like very much like yeah. Well, they're, like exactly. Slot. They're there for close quarters combat. Yeah, stuff. They, with they, literal like pulse best, shotguns. Yeah, <laughs> they're best at five inches with their. Uh, they they could AP three at uh, I think strength six AP three at five inches, which is really good. Well, that's you're... my strategy. I'm gonna put them in the devilfish. Yeah. Right, and then I'm just gonna devilfish is gonna move. Devilfish has just like stinking like a burst cannon on the front. Like it's like. The weakest tank. It's an eighty-point tank. Well, it's it's not meant. To, it's it's like the equivalent of a rhino for the Tau. Yeah, for three times the cost. How much is a rhino? Rhino's like thirty-five points. Yeah. How fast does the Delfish move? As fast as I. Th- well, it might be a skimmer. So, uh, oh well, there we go. Yeah, that makes so more skimmer. sense. So and moves um, a little faster. Yeah, it has. I think the burst cannon's a better gun than the. Um, well, the burst cannon's like better dumb. than the storm bolter. Yeah, on the rhino, it, it does. Yeah, the burst cannon does like it, on, yeah, at least on stealth suits, it's done work. Yeah, that's true. That's uh, so I think it's four uh, strength five shots. Yeah, yeah. So I'll move that up really fast, and then I'll dump out the the breachers. It's got two side uh, exits, and then hopefully get in people's faces. Or I can just park them on an objective and you know dare anyone to come by. And oh, you want to be within three inches? Face some AP3 pulse carbines, my friend, or pulse blasters, <laughs> right in the face. Well, yeah. hopefully the uh, enemy won't have reached that far <laughs> if you're playing Dow. That, that's true. I don't come out from behind my gun line. Yeah, that's. Well, I mean, <laughs> no, unless you're unless you're like stealth suits and have the cover saves to oh, do yeah, that. Yeah, that's true. You don't really want to get in the opponent's face. 
Yeah, but I'm getting the sense from people I've talked to that nobody wants to play my town now. Yeah. Like, like you don't want to play it. Arthur to the definitely doesn't want to play it. And then like some other people like mentioned they said, No, too cheesy. What yeah. else you got? Yeah. <laughs> what other armor you got? Because again, in comp- again, in comparison to other code SCs, yeah. it's just not all right. We we yeah. talked we talked we talked that to death. Yeah, we've talked that to death. Nobody it's, wants to hear that yeah, anymore. Whatever. That's right. All right. So you're you're planning we didn't we didn't play this week. Um, because we got uh, Jonathan and I got into this big Inquisimunda game, yeah. but um, on our next um, podcast, we'll probably be talking about your your trial with the Cult Mechanicus, right? Uh, yeah, slash Skitari. Um, yeah, I'm sort of interested in them because they have a very different feel than uh, they have a very um, steampunk. I would describe them as for um, 40k. Is it the look that is attracting you to playing them, or is it what they can do? Um, it's a little bit of both, really. They have they look really cool. They look really cool. They have the whole um, arcane technology thing nailed down in terms of look. All the guns look a little weird. All the models look just sort of like it's a little off. Like when the um, where are they? The uh, not the Rangers. The Vanguard. Vanguard. No, no, not Vanguard. Not Vanguard. The oh, elites. the Rust Stalkers. Rust Stalkers. Rust Stalker infiltrators, particularly. Yeah, look with very their, with their um, cable antenna or dish satellite yeah. heads. It's I like the whole human but not quite look going on there. They're augmented. Yeah, they're very Iron Hands. Look at them and go, oh man, that's so cool. Those guys <laughs> are so cool. <laughs> yeah, Iron Hands tryhards. They get jealous. Uh, yeah, the um, yeah, I like sort of just like how they will everything. The proportions just look a little weird. Like the arms are a little too lanky. Yeah, and uh, they bend in weird places. Yeah, and that it looks. And I think that looks really cool. And besides that. Their rules are just like pretty, pretty awesome. Well, I, mean, I, I hope you enjoy playing them. Um, are you? Do you want to play the War Convocation, which would be the Skatari Maniple, um, the Cult Mechanicus, and an Imperial Knight, or do you want to play um, just Cult Mechanicus with Skatari? I probably would want to do. I would probably want to include the Knight. I don't know. I'd have to. Um, well, I think the War Convocation gives you free upgrades. Yeah, Ward. Yeah, so I'd probably want to. Yeah. So you probably, probably want to go with that because that sounds exactly. pretty vicious. Yeah, that does. My yeah. only concern with them is that they seem to have, have like a lack of any feasible transports. Yeah, so you have to you have to ally with you know space marines in order to borrow their drop pods. But if I did a maniple, well, if you did a maniple, you can run up the the rust dockers and infiltrators. Yeah, they're, they're pretty fast, and the, uh, we have a dragoon. You can run up a dragoon, but still. Yeah, it's um, not. It's not too. I, I'd have to have. Um, yeah, no. When we're, I mean, I could run up the knight as well because the knight moves like twelve inches. I think. Yeah, yeah. When I move twelve inches. Yeah. Uh, he'll be a massive bullet magnet. Yes. <laughs> well, so we'll see. I mean, I, I'm I'm dying to play my blood angels. I haven't played them in a long time. Yeah, and yeah. I've got that chaplain that I just want to I want to feel because he's he looks so shiny, and <sighs> awesome, beautiful. Um, and but I also have. I just added a contemptor to my iron hands army so i might i might do that or Ooh. maybe i'll do both you could always do both or maybe i'll do guard uh, yeah, that's an option i guess yeah <laughs> um <laughs> all right interesting well, we'll, we'll see we'll tune yeah. tune in in two weeks and you'll hear that we're, we're predicting what we're gonna bring to the table that that makes for good entertainment okay hmm. oh that reminds me i had a great conversation with troy graber from the flying monkey gt um, we Skyped last week, and he told me about an upcoming uh, tournament in Wichita, Kansas, April 15th, 16th, and 17th 
at the Century 2 Convention Center in Wichita. And it sounds like a lot of fun. He's a, he's a longtime uh, 40K player that um, put this together. It's his first GT that he's organized. I think he's expecting about 120 people. They're expecting, I think, 50 to 60 40K players. It's an ITC format. They're going to be having events besides the, the, the GT. They'll be having a beer hammer tournament and a night joust as well. Oh wow! So that's, that, that, that's pretty fun. Like like equip your night, like <laughs> as, you know, maximize it out, yeah, yeah. and then it's just two nights going at it. So wait, would that be like Forge World nights or just like regular nights? Come one, come all. Oh, just oh. bring your night. Oof, why not? That's that's cool. Yeah, I just well, you know, two nights enter, one night leaves, kind of a thing. So that should be fun. Yeah. So again, um, if you want more information about the Flying Monkey GT, and Troy's been great. He's been um, he's fun to talk to, and I know he's been making the rounds. I heard him on Allies of Convenience and um, Preferred Enemies, or they mentioned the, the GT and the Preferred Enemies podcast and a few others as well. So Troy's been getting out there to you know bring attention to the Flying Monkey GT. Really sounds like a great tournament, great, great event. Uh, for more information, you guys should uh, go to flyingmonkeygt.com. The tournament is in April. So if you're going to the LVO or um, Adepticon, you've got plenty of time to prepare your list for the Flying Monkey GT. All right, flyingmonkeygt.com. All right, so when we return, uh, we have an interview with Jonathan Hartman. Uh, he's a, a great painter. He is one of the 40K players here in the LA Warhammer scene. So an interview with Jonathan Hartman when we return. back uh we're here with jonathan hartman jonathan is uh one of the most accomplished painters i've run across i've been wanting him to have jonathan on the eye of terror thank jonathan you. welcome thanks for joining us on the show thank you thank you for having me Appreciate yeah. it. that's so, very kind words <laughs> well yeah, your work is amazing we'll have pictures of some of jonathan's work on the facebook page so please check in on that later let's get to know you a little bit so sure. uh tell me about uh your 40k experience how'd you get started in the hobby what armies have you played and you know, just give us a general sense of uh, what you've done in 40k sure I got started in 40K um, back via the original Space Hulk, which I believe was like 1991, somewhere oh, around there. Okay. Yeah. Right? Um, uh, even a little bit earlier than that, my grandparents had taken a trip to the UK on a vacation. And when they came back, they brought me back a handful of assorted figures. And so that was the first figures I had. And, and some of them were historicals. There were a few 40K. I remember we had some of the very early first edition, like Rogue Trader Eldar. We also, when I say we, I say we because I have a younger brother um, who's uh, younger than I, about seven years younger. Um, so I was a teenager and he was like seven, eight, nine years old, but he liked that stuff too. His name is Scott and he's still painting too and involved in this. He's in San Francisco. Um, we had some of the old Rogue Trader Eldar and some of those kind of figures, some of the Rogue Trader Space Adventurer figures mm -hmm. before they were even specifically, you know, that, but didn't have Space Marines yet. Didn't know about that. And then, uh, in 91, my parents took my family on a vacation and we also went to London and the rest of the UK in general. And we actually went to Nottingham, although I didn't know at the time that, uh, Games Workshop existed, which is weird. Um, had I known, it would have been different. Uh, but we were in Harrods in London, and we were in the toy store of Harrods, and there was the original Space Hulk box set. And there was just something about the cover, and it was so ridiculous and grimdark, and I just thought, I, I have to have that. And I remember really clearly at the time, it cost, um, 
I think I bought it for 35 pounds, which uh-huh. actually felt expensive at the time. I was like, beesh, that's like a $55 game. Uh, but I got it, and my brother and I, and my cousin, I have a younger cousin who's just six months younger than I, we all started playing Space Hulk just obsessively, just absolutely obsessively. And then what happened is there was kind of this natural progression where Space Hulk started to kind of leave the Space Hulk. We started playing games that kind of ventured outside of the Space Hulk. We had these weird random assortment of Eldar figures and adventurer figures, and we felt like they needed to come in, and so we'd set up these different scenarios and you know, play with those figures. And so I started painting around then uh, really, really poorly. And then I went off to college and uh, I studied music and I was at school, I was busy and I kind of, I always liked that stuff, but it kind of sat on the shelf and I didn't do it um, for quite some time. Um, Although, and then, you know, I went into my music career, which led me to New York. I'd say in the late nineties, I started to kind of become thinking about it again and uh, in New York, I came across, there were a number of Games Workshop stores in New York. So I started to meet the guys who ran those shops. And some of those people are still very, very close friends to this day, including guys like Nigel Wood, who was the former um, Games Workshop. He worked at the headquarters and then they assigned him to take care of the entire East Coast stores, all the East Coast stores. Um, he's a close friend to this day. And so kind of meeting people who were really involved in it, you know, at the core of it. And then what happened is there was a kind of pivotal moment where my mother called my brother and I and said, we're cleaning out um, all the attics, right? Yeah. And you have all these board games and comic books and miniatures and assorted stuff. Next time you come home and visit, you need to decide what you want to keep. And I came home and so I, I took a bunch of it and my brother kind of was like a like a hobby divorce. My brother took half and I took half. <laughs> uh-huh. And then... Um, I kind of, you know, I found out that you could repaint miniatures. So I had a lot of really poorly painted pewter miniatures that I found out that you could strip. Mm-hmm. And so I started kind of painting those initially because I had them there free and kind of learning how almost how to repaint from scratch, like around, I want to say around 98, 99, going towards 2000. And then by around 99, 2000, I got really, really kind of the bug kind of hit me. And I remember around that time too, that was like when Games Workshop had re-released um, the, the or released it originally the Lord of the Rings game. I didn't play it, but I, I I thought the books looked really amazing and I loved the terrain and how it looked and um, and that kind of um, became like a thing for me. Like it kind of inspired me to want to get further into it, um, and that kind of started then an avalanche of of army building and painting. And my kind of general rule was that I would. Um, go and build and paint something i'd play it for some time and then i kind of be fickle or not be happy with the paint jobs by the time i got to the end of the army and then often turn it around and sell them and then take that money and put it right back into another new army wow and that kind of became a weird progression for me where Mm -hmm. i um i did it many many times Mm -hmm. and it kind of got bigger and bigger and bigger each time because i found people were, were really willing to pay for my work and so I, I wouldn't call myself a professional painter. Like you wouldn't call me up and I wouldn't, I wouldn't paint for you per se, but I would do whatever army I wanted to do, fully build it and usually do around 2000 or 2,500 points of 40 K mm-hmm. and then turn around and sell it. And over the course of 2001, 2002, 2003, 2004 to maybe 2005-ish, I did this fairly regularly and was often selling armies for, you know, That's kind of actually a a great deal um, if for the quality level that you would provide. Yeah. 2,000 points. 
plus all the saving of time. Yeah. 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 I mean, if I were to do it as an actual paint for hire guy. Yeah, you'd be charging more. Yeah, I would be charging more. Right. But for me, it was more. I I had felt like I, you know, I never had a, a an attachment kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Maybe because I was a jazz musician, and I always felt like you know, jazz musicians. Were, I feel like they're like comedians or like baseball players. Like if you have a crappy night, you get to go back and do it again the next day. And so I kind of felt like with armies, like I always knew that if I didn't like it or if I wanted to go back and do another Marine Army, I could always do another Marine Army. If I built an Eldar army and it was great and then I sold it and I felt remorse about it, then, you know, certainly a couple years down the line, I could always just do it again. I felt kind of confident in my techniques. And so each army kind of made a little bit more money and got bigger and bigger and bigger. And so I was always kind of able to turn around and just do continuous projects. But I went through a stream there where I did a few fantasy. I've never been deeply into Warhammer fantasy, but I did a few fantasy armies because the local meta Mm -hmm. had a lot of players for fantasy. Uh, in New York City, not only the Games Workshop in, in Greenwich Village, which is really big on 8th Street, but there's a store called The Complete Strategist. I know it. Been there. Love yeah, it. Yeah. yeah. It's like, it's an insane place. It's just wall-to-wall um, board games and slightly odd people who have worked there for seemingly 70 years straight. <laughs> and um, But they have a group called the Warmongers there, uh-huh. which is the local gaming group. And they're really hardcore um, tournament-oriented players. So yeah, I did a few fantasy armies, too. But I I don't even know how many armies I did during that time. But I would venture a guess that I would say that in that six-year time, I probably fully built and painted and or sold, I would say, at least a dozen armies. Wow. That's impressive. Yeah. Well, one of the things that people kind of sometimes comment about me is that I'm fast. And that's mm-hmm. certainly true. I think that came about from that process where you know, have something going for six months, turn it around, do another one for six months. Whatever. Were you playing during this time at all? Yeah, yeah. Okay, uh, you mean playing play 40k? Play, playing 40k. Yeah, I would play 40k regularly. Uh, okay. I would. I was a very avid 40k player. And so, what what, what armies were you running? Um, you know, I, I would say the first three four years, I I had an Eldar a Yadin army, the 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 dead guys, the with the spirit host kind of whatever guys. Mm-hmm. Where, I don't know the exact name for those, but where they have the uh, the wraith lords and the wraith guard. I played one of those armies uh, for a long time, and that was actually, I have to say, really beautifully painted, at least for that time in my painting life or career. Mm-hmm. I look back at those pictures and still, I don't wince. Like, I go, oh, that's, that's <laughs> uh-huh. pretty good. Um, they were like this beautiful jade and bone kind of combo. Um, I played Imperial Fists, and that started a kind of weird obsession where I've built a number. I like painting yellow. You do. I've seen a lot of your yellow. Yeah. And so I have I think I've built and painted at different times three different Imperial Fist <laughs> armies. So that started at that time. Um, I had a red Marine army that was like non-chapter specific. Um, I did Space Wolves once. Another army that was really big for me kind of during the 3.5 Chaos Codex era, era. I really loved the Chaos Codex at the time and I did a number of things. I did a small Iron Warriors army at one point. Um, I also had a Slanesh army that was just beautifully painted and just ridiculously broken under the rule system. Mm-hmm. Um, I actually retired that army because it, it won so many times and it felt like it was just an autopilot win, like push the button and just murder your opponent. Like, like the tower now. Like the tower now. <laughs> well, that was an era in which like there was a, you could take a demon prince that could have basically guaranteed that he'd get the right psychic power so he mm-hmm. couldn't be shot at which is horribly broken. Yeah. And then he also had a number of people who could who were super fast and then could summon demonettes and or mounted demonettes off of him. 
And so, and then sonic weapons were really, really powerful in that codex. And what, what I did is, uh, sonic weapons were super expensive. They were all pewter things, but I had a number of friends, you know, who worked for Games Workshop. And so one of a couple of my buddies, um, used to go down to the Baltimore headquarters and they'd buy their bits by the pound. Oh, wow. That's how it worked <laughs> if you were an employee. Wow. So I don't know how they charged, you know, like, right. If you'd look at their catalogs, you know, a sonic weapon would be, 250 for a single sonic weapon but if you're paying by the ounce or by the pound it's just you know right a buck 50 a pound or something i don't know so i once had a friend of mine who came back and he gave me um 64 sonic sonic blasters and a bunch of the other weapons so i built a a, a totally broken (laughs) awful army so i played that for a long long time and it was fun and then i just decided it was a, a little excessive and mean and, you know, I've played other things kind of since then. And then I discovered orcs. And then I was kind of fully into orcs. That was, mm-hmm. like, my main thing. I would say I played orcs almost exclusively or, or as my predominant army for maybe seven years. Wow. I, and I've seen your orc army, although you, I think you just got rid of it. You just sold it, right? I've had two. So I'm not sure which one you saw. If you saw the recent one, that was, like, kind of Speed Freaks and Red and, and, and so forth. If you saw the older one... I saw one that was primarily seemed to have a lot of yellow in it. That was my Bad Moon's Army. Yes. Again, my obsession with yellow. Yeah. (laughs) My never-ending obsession with yellow. Yeah, so I had 4,000 points of Bad Moon's, and um, the army was featured a number of times on Bell of Lost Souls on the front page. Uh And to this day, if you Google Bad Moon's orcs, you often will see some pictures from that army, including Little Kong, which is a weird bobblehead. Dreadnought, who had like a stomper head, stomp a head on a tiny little legs. Um, and some other, I also had grot tanks before that was an actual Forge World thing. I had gone and built a whole squad of grot tanks with flamers, um, you know, that kind of a thing. Yeah. I, and a lot of Meganops. One thing that I think is a characteristic of your painting is you don't leave anything to convention. You, you're always adding details and elements. Uh, through kit bashing and yeah. through finding pieces here and there, yeah. not just from GW stuff, but from other miniature make- makers and uh, in many instances making it your own, yeah. that really distinguish the army and give it its own sort of personal flair. That's true. I, 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 I found that, I think that's part of the rationale for why I, I didn't like playing Warhammer Fantasy as much, because I felt that you were painting a lot of line infantry and you couldn't convert, not that you couldn't convert them, but because they all have to line up and fit, it, it, it didn't it didn't lend itself to that kind of style of um, hobby, right? Whereas uh, on orcs, I could go oh God, all day yeah. long. Yeah. So I remember, for example, when different kits would come out, the very first thing I would think is, what would that look like if I started slapping armor plates and, and loot that? You know, So for example, I took a Valkyrie kit. I remember when the plastic Valkyrie first came out. The very first weekend it came out, uh, within four or five hours of its release, I had one where it looked like it was a giant fly, uh, flying like jaw kind of piece, <laughs> like like you know, uh, like a giant iron gob you know, with guys flying and and grots hanging off the plane edges, and so yeah, a lot of that army kind of became known too because every single aspect of it was fully converted. There was a battle, uh, you know, like a battle wagon for that, and it was you know from a land raider and then from an actual battle wagon kit, but it had a large gun that was from a um, like a World War Two. I can't remember the name of it, but the, the Nazis had invented six railway cannons. Yes. I know we're talking about. Yeah. And, they, yeah, and they were just monstrously they large. They could shoot like 20, 30 miles. 20, 30 away. miles. And their shells were, you know, like yeah. four foot across or something. And there was a model kit for that thing that was like a 135th scale model kit. And I once bought it solely so I could get the gun. 
<laughs> just to convert for an orc battle. So yeah, that's been a big thing for me. And and even for individual small figures, I I, I don't tend to like stock figures as they are. I kind of feel like even if he's got stock equipment that I want to find a way to kind of personalize it. Mm-hmm. Um, generally speaking, I haven't, I would say in the last 10 years, I really haven't done many armies where I haven't fully converted wow. something. Well, the, the uh, results are amazing. Uh, wonderful. Um, in fact, I want to talk a little bit about some of the uh, painting tips that you might offer some of our listeners. Sure. A lot of people uh, love the hobby aspect of it. Uh, in fact, it sounds to me like you love the hobby aspect of it probably even more than the gaming aspect. I would say it's shifted to that these days. I'm I'm more involved on painting rather than playing. Right. Yeah. Right. Question. So if you're, if you're fairly new to 40 K, what are some of the tips that you might provide uh, somebody who really wants to elevate their painting game? Like they're just starting, they're looking at their pictures and then uh, they're looking at their models and they're saying, you know, I'm not getting the results I want. Yeah. What would you suggest or some top tips? Sure. Um, Well, I have a couple of thoughts about that. Um, I'd say the first thing is that, I think one of the the pros and cons of the internet is that it's it, it it gives you access to like everything you can ever imagine, and I would say certainly there was a period you know eight to ten years ago when the internet was really kind of people were kind of staking out their claim, where sites like Cool Mini or Not started to kind of really rise in prominence, and for a while it was like the only place in town where you would go and see things. And on one hand, it's beautiful because it, it encourages I think everybody's level of painting. Even beginners and and medium level painters is significantly the skill level across the entire community is significantly higher now in 2016 than it was in 1999. Mm-hmm. Like you go back and you look at Golden Demon winners from like 1997 or even 2001. And sometimes I look at them and go, really? And you, and you think that's skill, not just aesthetics? Uh, I think a lot of it is skill. I think that there's I think the overall level of painting uh, ability. I think a lot of information is freely available now. You can go online. You can I, find. I agree. I I got started painting uh, by watching a lot of YouTube videos. Yeah. There's a guy named Apathetic Fish. Yeah, sure. Yeah, and so I'd watch a lot of his stuff. And, and he, was that the Russian guy by painted? Uh, yeah, the Russian guy. I love that. that the by painted. I, yeah. I watched all those videos, and yeah. they gave me a general sense of what to do because I had no idea when I started. Yeah, I, I bought my first little Space Marine kit with that came with little pots well, of paint. Well, I remember seeing even some of your first painted guys, and and they were okay. And then within about six months, there was a noticeable jump i would say a couple standards you know where yeah, you went, they, oh that's really it's not just competent it's now looking very good it's looking pretty it, it was a combination of of learning techniques from from things i saw online yeah. talking to painters like you in fact you're the first person to really tell me about non-gw washes oh like, yeah 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 like um, yeah i'm C- kind of secret a weapon miniatures secret weapons are one of my favorite. oh yeah you told me about baby poop and the armor wash yeah. and all these different things and i immediately the soft black in. Yeah, and I started uh, yeah. getting washes and incorporating them into my painting, using them to paint in little yeah. paints, doing things that were sort of outside of the GW, yeah. you know, painting guides. I, I think, I think so. So on one hand, you're proof positive of the fact of what they can do, right? Yeah. Uh, on the other hand, I think sometimes people who are just getting into the hobby can get easily discouraged because they go online and they Google miniature painting and they go to something a place like Cool Mini or not, and they see something that's such an incredibly high standard. They go, oh my god, I, I I can't ever do that. I feel discouraged by that, right? And and that's not even conjecture. I know several people who have come to the hobby, kind of in you know as adults, and love this stuff. And uh, some people I work with professionally, you know, in entertainment, and and they're just kind of a little bit flummoxed by how they feel like whatever they're going to do is not as good as that thing. And so I think it's really important, first of all, to kind of 
not judge yourself by those standards initially. I think that's really, really important. I think there's also a really big divide in wargaming and wargame painting between two different concepts. And the first concept is what I would call like the cool mini or not kind of concept in which you go and you look and it's just immaculately perfectly painted and you look mm. at it every single little detail and if you photograph it particularly under like a really high kind of you know exposure and in pixels and count and so forth you can see every single little thing and it's just perfect and there's some people out there who have just great brush control and they can do that and there's some painters even in our groups you know at arrow and at Gen hobbies in los angeles that are like that but there's a second kind of standard of painting which i think is like an army standard of painting and that, to me, is something that doesn't necessarily look absolutely perfect under close photography, but looks good at about a foot and a half, two foot out if you're holding it in your hands. Mm-hmm. If you put it on a tabletop and it feels like it pops, you know, and, and it's a different concept. You know, I tend to be more of a tabletop kind of oriented painter. I think it's a really high level of tabletop. But for me, my, my biggest concerns are really high contrast things that things pop, that highlights are maybe just a little bit over what you would normally do if you were doing a very subtle kind of thing. Because I have a couple people I know that are great painters in Los Angeles, and I and I see their stuff photographed, and I think, God, that's just beautiful. And then I see it in person, I'm like, oh, that's, that's nice. <laughs> right. Right? Yeah. And I, I feel like I'm the inverse of that. I feel like like my I photograph pretty good, but in person, I get a lot of notice. People stop, and they check it out, and they right. want to take notice. And I think that, and I, there's another aspect to that too. So the so first thing is, I think you should figure out, know that there's a broad range and spectrum and gradient of of painting ability and styles and concepts. Like I always really liked the War Games Foundry style of historical painting, which was like a three color or four color system in terms of you had a base coat, a medium coat, and one highlight, mm-hmm. and that was it. Mm-hmm. Because they were painting a hundred, you know, British line infantry for Napoleonics or something. But they, they had a style of painting that had very strong black separation. So, for example, if you had a sleeve, you would have a black line, a clear black line separating out, let's say, the flesh of the hand from the red of the British coat or something. And that kind of almost slightly cartoonish quality, while it seems cartoonish when it's photographed, I feel like those guys never got any love on Cool Mini or not. Like, people be like, oh, you get a six. I'll give you a six and a half. And you're like, no, dude, that... Like that's that's what they call it. it's the Kevin Dalamore style. That's the guy who did that style, spearheaded that style for War Games Foundry. But I think it's like a really unique style unto itself. It lends itself to historicals. But I think if you're a beginning painter, there's nothing wrong with like really clean separated areas, like being able to cleanly tell, you know, the, this color from this color, from this area, the, the head of the guy, from the arm of the guy, from the gun of the guy, you know, two or three layers of, of, of base coat, middle coat and highlight. You know, there's a lot to be said for that, just initially making that your goal and not having to look at the highest, highest things and feel like I you're inadequate. Totally agree. Um, I've got, I started off by painting primarily blood angels. Yeah. And um, I wanted them to pop yeah. off the table. Yeah. So I gave them a fist and red coat and they have yellow highlights. They have, ye- you know, like yeah. their pauldrons and their... Um, kind of like a kind of like a poor man's color modulation, like right to yellow. Exactly. Right. Exactly. Sure. Um, and when people look at that army and I have it deployed, people stop and go, oh, that's cool. That's a cool yeah. color scheme. They like it. And it pops off the table because yeah. you have the big contrast. Yeah. But if you pick up any one of my assault marines and take a look, close look, you're like, Ugh. <laughs> yeah. you know, they don't, they don't look great because yeah. they were my big, my first guys. And yeah. even now I look at them and I'm torn between leaving them to remind me of how I started versus sure. just, you know, totally sure. repainting and stripping. Or in my case, them. I just sold them to strangers. Right? Yeah. And just, and, 
but now I, I am the opposite of you in the sense that um, I get obsessed with the details. I, I use a six time, six diopter Magnifiers. magnifier. Sure. And I am trying to, you know, stay with as much within the lines and highlight individual details and really trying to make them look good in a photo, like a close up photo as yeah. much as I can. Yeah. Um, it's and, interesting. And they don't always look, that doesn't come through. On the tabletop. Well, it's interesting that you say that because I, I find myself leaning a little bit more towards photography oriented as well. Mm-hmm. We can talk about that a little bit later as to why, but part of that has to do with a focus on uh, painting fewer armies now and more individual figures. Mm-hmm. Um, part of it also has to do with with my real kind of obsession in the last couple of years with, you know, this Blanchitsu style movement, you know, with John Blanche and, and, and that kind of orientation and a lot of the people who are in that that world and, and working in the kinds of pictures they're taking. So that's definitely changed my style a bit. Um, going back to just, just not to make it too long with it, but you talked about, uh, you know, advice. One of the concrete things I would say is that you, you have to, just like anything, you have to do it a lot to get better. So I don't think that, know that if you haven't done an army before that, like by the time you get to the 30th space Marine in a row, He's going to be so much better than the first one <laughs> and know that the second time you do your, uh, you know, go and do a squad, they're going to be better. And that know that the, maybe you do an army and then the second you know, a year later you decide to do a different army, that army will be significantly better than the first. I think part of the reason that I'm able to paint the way that I am is because I was a nut and I painted 10 armies and, you know. I'm not saying that under these price points that people should you know, feel like they have to buy and build 10 armies. But there's something to be said for just each army was a little bit better. And generally speaking, too, the other rule I kind of gave myself for um, building and painting armies was, with the exception of my weird obsession with constantly going back to painting yellow, um, I've tended to try to make a rule for myself that each, if I go and do a project, the next project is a, a very different kind of color scheme and maybe presents different kinds of challenges um, from a color palette sensibility. So, for example, I once went and I did a Deathwing army, which is, you know, Terminators primarily and bone kind of color and... And that was the first army where I really experimented with a lot of washing, you know, and how I wanted to get that base coat, you know, figuring it out, you know. And that was kind of a valuable thing. Um, I also really believe in in that if you're, in general, this is a good tip, but if it's your first army or first thing that you're doing, I'm a really big fan of high contrast um, color schemes. Mm -hmm. So I I like, you know, I'm painting something yellow. Black is this complementary color. I'm, play, I'm painting something that's bone, you know, maybe something like blue or, or a green kind of spectrum. Uh, I'm going and doing something red. Maybe there's a metal color with it. But I like to, generally speaking, have two primary kind of colors, not primary colors as in red, blue, yellow, but two primary choice selections mm-hmm. for an army. And then my other kind of rule I always do is that um, in basing, because I'm, I'm really obsessed with basing, too that the basing on things should, generally speaking, be the opposite of what you're looking at. So if it's a dark colored miniature, that your basing should be lighter because the miniatures will stand out against that. And if it's a lighter color scheme, that your basing should be darker so that they stand out against that. And that's something I kind of figured out early. And no one told me it, but I noticed people would constantly always compliment my basing. And I don't think that my basing was necessarily great. I just think that it was appropriate against the figure, that it made the figure stand out nicely against that. So that's always been kind of an important thing for me too. I, I exactly followed that advice when I was uh, basing my Tau. I, that I 
took on the challenge of white armor for most of my Tau army. Yeah, that's and so now I have a dark a dark base and they nice they pop off of yeah. that, which is yeah. great. So now they're city fight. So much about painting is fooling the eye. Yeah, I, I don't think see this is goes back to the thing about really great painters. Yeah. You could you could be a, a really meticulous painter, but I think I kind of feel like a big part of miniatures is is the illusion of detail rather than the exactly. actual detail. Exactly. So especially if you're doing troops, you know, and you're yeah. You're doing a bunch of Cadians, like like you know, forty, fifty Cadians. Yeah. You're you don't have the time to individually, you know. Yeah, you're going to see them in mass as a as a group. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, totally. The other the other piece of real piece is like a technical piece of advice I would give, um, and I give this to every person. I've had a couple people say, "Oh, show me some painting," and sit down with me for an hour or two, even recently. And um, one of the other things I always do that I think is a really good piece of advice, and I don't know if it's out there. It seems obvious, but maybe it isn't. I like to paint inside out. So what I mean by that is like if you look at a figure, paint the things that are literally inside like if you were getting dressed. <laughs> right? Uh-huh. So you put on your shirt and then you put on your coat. If I'm going to paint a dude, I will paint the shirts first and then I will go and paint the coats. And sometimes people don't do that. And I find that from a technical perspective – you're less likely to make mistakes and screw things up. Or if you do screw things up, you can go back and fix them easier. Yeah. Whereas if you have something that's inside and kind of partially exposed or whatever. Another thing that I think is a nice technique I, I like to do, uh, I like to paint all the flesh on a figure first. All, all the faces and maybe exposed arms or you know hands or whatever. Mm-hmm. But even if I don't do that, sometimes I like just to do all the faces. There's something about if you have a giant pile of, of unpainted figures – and they're all primed black or white and they're just staring at you going, I'm not painted. There's something about painting the faces first and getting or the helmets or whatever, getting that done that just feels very satisfying. Like they don't, you know, and you can be like, OK, I can finish the rest of this figure. So that's that's the second thing. And then the third thing I found that's really handy is uh, particularly with speed painting or trying to work quickly through large groups of things. Um, one, you got to do batch painting, but you got to know your limit. So, you know. Maybe your limit's five guys. Maybe your limit's 10 figures. Maybe your limit's 20 in a batch. I once did a batch of 30 orcs at a time, like the maximum squad size. And I found myself, by the time I get to the 20th one, trying to paint the same boot, I'd go crazy. So you got to know what that is. But I would also say that it's really invaluable sometimes to um, just do one thing. So, for example, let's say I had 30 figures, you know, in a squad or something. Um, And I know that I have an hour or two that I'm going to paint tonight. I don't feel like I have to get to every single thing. I'm very happy to walk away at the end of the night and go, all their faces were painted. Done. All their teeth were painted. Done. All their guns were painted. Done. Tomorrow night, I'll go and tackle their boots. Sometimes I notice people will go in and paint and they feel like they have to do each base coat element. I'm going to do, I'm doing orcs. I'm going to do all their green skin and now I'm going to do the metal on all the shoulder pads and I'm going to do whatever highlight or tribe color they are, red or checkers or black or, I think there's something really valuable to going in and just seeing all their guns are painted. Yeah. One thing. That makes sense. Right? Yeah. And then, and then you kind of also don't, here's another reason why it's handy. If you go back, let's say a couple days pass or a week pass and you don't get a chance to paint and then you go back, it's very clear what the next thing you need to work on is. Whereas if you were working on three or four different color aspects of a figure and you're getting better and better and more and more highlights, you may come back to it and forget how far are you done. Had I done three highlights on the skin? Four highlights? I can't really remember. But if you finished one thing in one sitting, there's no question. It's done. 
right? So for me, that was like another technique for speed painting and being able to do armies really quickly. Like I, I don't mind if I had to paint a hundred elf spearmen, I'd just paint a hundred elf spears today. Right. And then a hundred pairs of boots next Saturday. <laughs> and they kind of slowly kind of metastasize into something that's done. Right. Any, uh, any projects that you're working on now? Yeah. So this two, two things, uh, terrain primarily, and then also, um, small scale Necromunda, Inquisimunda, what some people call Ink 28, Blanchetou style kind of, um, painting. So on the train, I built a lot of train over the last year. And a lot of people know me for terrain. Um, in, in here in Los Angeles, if you go to a couple shops, a lot of their terrain is stuff that I've painted for them mm-hmm. uh, or was in my collection and I kind of put on loan mm-hmm. uh, for a while. Mm-hmm. I've run into your terrain at Arrow and Next Gen. Yeah, and there's a few things floating around in other places too where people mm-hmm. have borrowed. And um, I, I, I was very happy with the train that I've done, um, but I kind of decided that I wanted to do kind of a next level version of this thing. I got to a point where I was doing a lot of uh, skirmish gaming, Necromunda, and I had so much loose scatter terrain, individual buildings, a hundred little crates and barrels and walkways and catwalks and, you know, this and that. And, 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 and it looked beautiful, but it was just too much loose stuff. And it was easy to misplace. Or if I brought it to someone's house or to a store, easy for something to kind of go awry. So I'm doing this project right now, kind of tied in with, uh, it's being, it's online. You can look at it at the Ammo Bunker uh, online, uh, the Inc. 28 section of the Ammo Bunker forum. That's kind of the home of the Blanchetou kind of style movement. Um, my my handle there is Shibboleth. Mm-hmm. And um, it's Shibboleth Sumptown. Shibboleth like Cthulhu? Like no, Shibboleth, Shibboleth like the um, ancient Hebrew word, uh, which if you go in the Old Testament, they were in a, in a war at one point. And shibboleth was the word that they used to distinguish friend from foe because if you couldn't mm. pronounce it in Hebrew, then they just killed you. <laughs> <laughs> so it's kind of like uh, in World War II, like if they weren't sure the Germans coming up on them, they'd say, yeah. you know, who's Black, the first, who's right. the first baseman for, oh, right. <laughs> for, for, you know, who plays first base for the New York Yankees? Right. You know, I'm not a baseball guy. Yeah. Who's Mickey Mantle married to? <laughs> yeah. Shibboleth. That's a shibboleth. It's a, it's a kind of word between friends. If you know, then you know. And if you don't, then you don't. So Shibboleth, uh, Sumptown Chronicles is the project log I've been working on. I intend to work on it over the course of the next year. Uh, it's a longer range thing and it's, um, it's thematic terrain that's set in, I would say, the Necromunda world as being industrial terrain that has then been reclaimed by homesteaders and various never-do-wells and miscreants and scum and villainy and who've built, you know, favela-style shanties, you know, in there. And that it's a sump. So in Necromunda, in the background, the bottom of the spires, there's often radioactive water and sewage and stuff like that. So that this place routinely floods, and it's kind of like a nautical coastal city of sorts. Um, so there's water tiles, and there's going to be shipwreck tiles, and I'm thinking about doing a lighthouse with actual LEDs for the lights, and various swarms of shanties and stacked on top of each other, and you know nothing more fun than you know doing a couple games where it's just kind of madness in the underhive. And so that's the well, project. we we played on that today. Um, we'll get into Inquisimunda, yeah. our game, in a second. Uh, and I got to say, it, it really added. I I think I mentioned during the game that it almost is a character in the game. Yeah. Uh, it has a very built upon feel in a very organic way, like yeah. a society that is taking the remnants of these buildings and trying to 
turn it into a some sort of living zone. Yeah. Um, I love your. Um, I love all the water effects that you have in there. I love that you use different materials. Like there's like a like there's sailing cloth stretched out with ropes, so that yeah. it actually feels like a little bit more of a nautical theme. Uh, your hazard stripes are <laughs> everywhere, which is awesome. I love hazard stripes. That, well, that's the funny thing to me about Necromunda. Like, there's this whole thing about Necromunda where it's the most dangerous place you could ever imagine, and yet there's safety striping everywhere. Yeah, exactly. Watch your step. Watch your step. Don't <laughs> go falling eight there. floors down, even though this whole place is rusted metal and you're going to die of, you know, uh, right. uh, tetanus in about a second. Yeah. Um, no, totally. I appreciate that. Um, the, the Part of the rationale for the new system is... Um, for the longest time, I've been looking at this thing called Battleframe uh, 5000, which is a horrible, dumb name for a product. No offense to the company who makes it, but it's a horrible name. Um, it just sounds weird. Uh, it sounds like it reminds sounds me like of a fighting robot. Yeah, it reminds me of that horrible 70s movie, Death Race 2000. Like, <laughs> like it's just stupid. I love that movie. What are you talking about? Yeah, I know, right? It's great. It's classic. It's classic. Like, um, But what they sell is they sell these laser-cut MDF... Um, they're technically not 12 inches. They're like 30, you know, 30 you know, centimeter or whatever. Mm-hmm. But um, 30 millimeter, whatever. And anyway, they, they're set up so they're just shy of 12 inches. And the reason, yes, you could go and get MDF at any lumber yard cut for you. But as you know, even if you have your own table saw, they're never exactly perfectly straight. So the things about these is that they're perfectly straight 12 inch blocks. And they have a little bit of a, imagine like a box top. And mm-hmm. so they have sides to them. Mm-hmm. Um, they're sold in 16 millimeter deep and 33 millimeter deep. What are the kind we play with? These are 16s. Okay. Um, I wanted a lower profile. Mm-hmm. And the thing that's great about them is that in the sides of this kind of box top, they have um, rare earth magnets. And so every single tile will snap perfectly into any other tile. So if you have 16 tiles, it'll give you a four foot by four foot board. You could build fairly dioramic style uh, pieces and know that you could mix and match them and change them around, change their orientation. And I found that with the amount of scattered terrain I had, at a certain point I started seeing a lot of the same kinds of combinations. This was a way of building something that had more of a diorama quality and yet stored really easily and I didn't have loose pieces flying everywhere. And the other thing it allowed me to do in terms of the diorama part of it, when I was a kid I was obsessed with like if you go to the Natural History Museum or, you know, you know, and you see these little dioramas and scenes, I always loved little things, right, and trains. And so with, I kind of felt frustrated with 40K in the sense of, there's a sensibility about play in 40K where you put down three buildings and a, a, a set of really bad trees and go, yeah, there's our table. And and it's a generality, I, I, I know, but I, I see it a lot and I never felt the way I wanted. So for me, I liked to be able to see that inner day-to-day life of that world where, yeah, I have shanties, but I also have a bum passed out in between in the shack. And there's one piece that we played on today and there's a clothesline going between this power pumping station. And, you know, that one of the buildings is not just a shack, it's clearly um, a fishmonger. Mm-hmm. And there's a table filled with lobsters on the outside <laughs> that you can go and eat. And so it has a slightly diorama kind of fun interactive quality but it's also still been designed to be very functional as gaming in terms of... Yeah, a lot of blocking line of sight. Line blocking line of sight. Right. Uh, There's nothing built that figures don't stand on. Right. That's kind of like a rule number one. Um, a couple of people that we play with are obsessed with... My brother is obsessed with that. He gets really angry at me when I would build terrain that figures couldn't fit on. So everything's built so that figures can 
clearly fit on it, you know, whether they're 25 or 40 millimeter kind of range for the bases, mm -hmm. a lot of blocking terrain, mm -hmm. a lot of making sure that there's views, lines of sights are always blocked in different ways. And, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, no, the uh, terrain is beautiful. Um, Thank you. Loved it. All right, well, why don't we take a little break, and when we come back, we'll talk about um, our game of Inquisimunda. Okay, we're back. All right, we just played a really fun game of Inquisimunda, a variant of Necromunda, yeah. one of the GW specialist games. But this a niche within a niche, a niche within a niche, boy, within yeah. a niche. Boy, do you have to be nerdy to be. This playing is the Necromunda. inception <laughs> of of miniatures games. <laughs> All right, so you and I have both heard the same rumor that Necromunda is likely to come back this year as one of the specialist games yes. that GW will be releasing, maybe through Forge World. Yes. Yeah. Uh, so we're excited. But there is a, for now... I would say it's stronger than a rumor. Stronger than a rumor. Just okay. from things I know. And Practically like confirmed. It. Yeah, definitely. Close to being confirmed. Yeah, I, without question, Necromunda is going to show up on people's doorsteps. And yeah. there's no better time to start playing Necromunda and building stuff than now. Than now. And then when it comes out later this year, you're, you know, you're great. So you, I, I get the sense if you go online, you can get copies of the Necromunda rulebook. Yeah, definitely. Right. So um, you, you gave me a copy so that you know, with it's now a living rule book so that there are some changes. Yeah. So the, the first thing about Necromunda to know if you're kind of getting into Necromunda now yeah. before the new version of Necromunda, the new hotness shows up, mm -hmm. whatever that will be, mm -hmm. uh, is that, yeah, the, if you're going to play with people regularly, for example, here in Los Angeles, there's there's people at some of the video game companies I met, like at Riot that play. There's, there's a whole Necromunda league at Riot. I'm not sure if you're aware of this. It's crazy. I just met one of the senior Riot guys and the lead writer for League of Legends, and they were telling me about their uh, Necromunda. Yeah. And they also played Dark Heresy and other RPG. Yeah. Yeah. Know, it's it's so games. funny where you see this stuff pop up in Los Angeles, like all these great different creative people. Yeah. Um, so the, the first thing they kind of put out there is that there's different versions of this. The safest way to do it is, is if you find a copy of what is kind of thought of as second edition Necromunda, it was Necromunda Underhive. Mm -hmm. And that that is like the rule book that came out in 2001. So granted, it's already dated. It's 15 years old. But it's kind of like a nice stalwart thing. There is a version that's floating around online called the Necromunda Community Edition, where people have kind of collectively gone in and made some decisions to fix a few things here and there. Um, that is also kind of predicated on the idea that at one point Games Workshop had put out a couple of FAQs about the game and rather than trying to find all that material 15 years after Just the fact. compile it into one Compile source. it into one thing, one yeah. PDF. Um, and there's a couple of different versions of that floating around. But again, if things look the way they look, then you, know, you won't have to hunt. It'll be in your local game store. You know. So Necromunda is a skirmish-based game set on the world of Necromunda, which is a high world, yeah. which consists of, as like a lot of the training we talked about, um, you know, very close, vertical, very vertical, lot, lots of different layers. Yeah, if you're not playing Necromunda vertically, you're playing it wrong. <laughs> so, <laughs> so like Star Trek 3D chess. <laughs> it's it's the Star Trek 3D chess of yeah. So if you're used to playing Warhammer 40k, generally speaking, you're probably playing on relatively flat lateral kind of plane boards. 
maybe there's a building that's two stories tall, you know, or a ruin or something like that. Necromunda is, the concept for Necromunda is, Necromunda was Games Workshop version of, like, the cities from Blade Runner or, like, the Mega City one of, from you know, Judge, Judge Dredd. Dredd. Right. This vertical kind of combination of, you know, uh, not only large habitat kind of places where people were packed into essentially apartment building style habs, but also, you know, building on top of other buildings, on top of other buildings, on top of other buildings. And then next thing you know, this whole place is three miles tall. Um, and then, of course, the places underneath start to crumble and get worse. And, you know, some of the support structures. And so things are always kind of changing and being built over other places. So Necromunda is set in the bottom parts of the spire that are essentially ruined and partially abandoned because people have built on top of them. And, you know, so if you go to like London and they dig and they're 25 foot down and they see, you know, the Roman ruins, we'll do that for three miles. Right. And so that's kind of the world of Necromunda. If you go back to all the Necromunda artwork and even the kind of self um, studio train that they had in the original books, it's very stacked. It's very on top of each other. And they, the original box set came with these bulkhead plastic pieces that could be connected together and you'd have plastic or cardboard kind of walkways. Mm-hmm. So it tends to be a game that's involved about cat catwalks across really tall terrain, you know, crisscrossing. And it should be a game that's got kind of like these days it's been that that banner has been picked up by places like infinity where people are obsessed with like lots and lots of terrain on a small skirmish game but necromunda is kind of the grandfather of that kind of sensibility oh cool and uh in the fluff for necromunda the underhive is ruled by a collection of gangs yeah different constantly scrapping for you know power money influence the yeah. usual things it's, it's got a fair amount of like mad max influence on it too yeah. you know definitely from its time period when it first came out in the late 80s uh so it's got a little bit of like thunderdome vibe on it like <laughs> the original models like the goliath gangs kind of they got the punk rock you know mohawks and they've been doing so, steroids and working out at the gym and so leather leather bound and muscles yeah there's a slight <laughs> s&m aspect to, to their, saturday to night look totally right exactly <laughs> so that that's like the original necromunda and then what we played today was inquisimunda and so inquisimunda as we said is a niche within a niche within a niche of wargaming i guess and so inquisimunda is a fan-made kind of community-made uh creation and I, I, not to do any disservice, if someone listens to this podcast, there is one original guy who put this together. Mm-hmm. And I'll be honest, I don't know his name. So mm-hmm. I don't want to act but as thank a, you, Thank you, stranger. Mysterious Stranger. Uh, I know that he's involved, if you go online, on uh, I think he was on like the Yak Tribe, you know, Necromunda boards, that guy. So the, the Inquisimunda was basically people who liked playing GW's Inquisitor, which was a great fantastically detailed game that was about one step away from being a role-playing game it was a great game the only problem with it in my opinion and i guess maybe many people's opinion was that the figures were quote-unquote the wrong scale there were 54 millimeter scale figures instead of 25 so all your figures were substantially bigger and they had a relatively small range of figures so at some point or another in the last five six years people started going back to inquisitor and saying that was a really fun game what if I played it with 25 millimeter scale figures? Because then I can convert them and do what I want to do. And so if you look online, there are a number of people who kind of started that aesthetic. Uh, one of which is uh, a friend of mine, Mixula, and was one of the first guys to kind of build a lot of like Inquisitor looking guys mm-hmm. at that scale. 
Um, and so people said, well, Inquisitor is a great game, but it's very, very complicated for what it is. It's, it's, it's a game that if you don't play it regularly, God help you, because you, you're constantly looking stuff up. And there's a lot of math. Not at all like 40K. Even worse. <laughs> even worse. There's a lot of math, too. Like, <laughs> Not well, at all like 40K. Let me figure out the fractions on you know this. And so Necromunda is a very fast-paced game. It's a very kind of simple game. It's got a great campaign system and, and, and kind of a growth tree so that your games can get better and develop skills and from game to game can get a little better. So basically... If you kind of took peanut butter and put it with chocolate, people took some of the best elements of Inquisitor, mm-hmm. shoved it on top of the Necromunda rule set as the engine, and that kind of became the community version of Inquisimunda. And if you look at people online, particularly kind of people following that Blanchitsu, John Blanche kind of painting aesthetic, which has shown up. I keep saying Blanchitsu because that was the name of the column showing up in the White Dwarf magazines right. for a while. It generally describes sort of a... a I would call it somewhat of a gothic horror, yeah, more organically based. It's also a different kind of paint style. It tends to be a little bit, um, I say this with all love for John, it's a kind of more, it's a less less detailed, a little bit more broader strokes, a little more, uh, you know, it's like impressionistic painting. If you look at it really close, it doesn't make sense. But when you step back from it, it's stunning. So it's a little more impressionistic in terms of its painting style, which is kind of how his his actual art style is as, mm-hmm. a, as a painter and drawer. Um, so, yeah, a lot of these people started kind of becoming interested in that style of painting. And it, it tends to emphasize small individual figures, which I think is just a natural fit for wanting to play the Necromunda rule set, which is playing games with five to ten figures on a side and that you, emphasizing a story trying to play really narrative-oriented gaming um, that isn't... It's not to say it's not point-based. You can play Necromunda and Inquisimunda with points. You can say, let's build a 1,300-point game. But it tends to be much more oriented about story play and narrative things and going on adventures and kind of going back to when you're a kid and we were playing Space Hulk and then we had other figures and we wanted to find a way to let's create a scenario and an adventure why these other guys would play. So it's a little more of a storytelling aspect. And I think particularly at this point in my painting career and in my terrain building career, in my gaming life, a lot of the people that I'm playing with, I'm I'm more drawn to that. And maybe that's also because, you know, again, I'm working in Los Angeles and working with filmmakers and television people and people who are really interested in storytelling. And um, I've never been a big, huge role player. Uh, You know, I played a little bit of Dungeons and Dragons as a kid. We all did. Yeah, a lot. I also really loved games like Gamma World and Top Secret. I played Gamma World. Gamma World's and Necromunda kind of reminds me of Gamma World. It's got a kind of Gamma World quality. No, oh, I it's love definitely Gamma World. So this is a way of playing a game that you can tell a story with, but maybe you don't, for someone who doesn't feel like they actually want to role play and do voices and that kind of a thing, but they want to play a game that isn't about necessarily just beating somebody in the face. You know, here's my 1,500 points of Space Marines versus your 1,500 points of Tyranids. Right. It's a game about... You know, can we go and kidnap the governor and, you know, get him to our, 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 it's like the movie Aliens, you know, can we get to the, to the extraction LZ, you know, and get in out time. of time well, before the whole place yeah. blows up. I liked movies like the Dirty Dozen and um, where Eagles Dare as a kid, that old Tim, uh, you know, Clint Eastwood and Richard Burton movie where they have to infiltrate this Nazi castle on a uh, that's fortified on a mountain and the only way up to it is ski tram and you have to be stealthy and then get your guy and then get out 
I liked those kinds of things as a kid, and I think it's a way to play those kinds of games and tell those kinds of stories without, you know, a million models. Uh, recently, I played uh, Kill Team and uh, a yeah. variant of that, Heralds of Ruin. and Which is fun. Yeah, both are fun. Uh, Kill Team allows for small squad skirmish. Yeah. Uh, Herald of Ruin allows for individual, you know, in the basically individual models to have their own sort of skill sets and yeah. you can pick among them. This extends that further by giving them all, you can really customize them to the number of wounds. You can play with their base stats. Yeah. You can also add uh, skills and weapons to yeah. really individualize the. And, and just to be clear, this thing that we're talking about, um, it exists in the Inquisimunda Community Edition, which is floating around. Mm-hmm. But this is an even kind of more specific aesthetic that's um, kind of being put forth by guys like John Blanche at Games Workshop and guys like McSula. And mm-hmm. if you go online to the Ammo Bunker, guys like PDH and uh, um, Jeff Vader and all these interesting, crazy painters, mm-hmm. Wilhelm. Um, there's just a tremendous weirding way who's a fantastic painter. There's all these guys kind of doing this and they're playing these games and with each other. Uh, if you go to websites like the Convertorium, uh, Jeff Fader's website, that guy's incredibly talented, but he has pictures for some of his games. And if you look at them, they're they're really geared around this super small. Every guy can be customized. And this specific way that we played today is uh, called Building Your Warband by the Dozens, which is how John Blanche and McSula are doing uh, this gaming project they're doing with Games Workshop for the summer called The Pilgrim. And so really flexible, and it's about building these weird models and then looking at them and feeling how can we make them you know balance them and it does have a moderate point system it's not to say it doesn't but the dozen system was well you have 12 wounds divide them up allocate them among many models as you want yeah 12 guys each with one wound six guys with two wounds you know one from column a one from column b sure uh 12 skills allocate them as you want yeah 12 special pieces of gear plasma gun armor power armor whatever allocate them as you see fit um 12 stat increases so if you take the generic human in warhammer 30k three 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 you know 12 points of weapon skill or ballistic skill or movement or toughness or leadership bonuses so theoretically everyone's kind of balanced by doing that and then throw down and see what you get all right. So the other ask, the other thing that's really different about this game is that um, it has a strong narrative uh, yeah. through line. Yeah. You rolled on a an old Anacromunda table. We pulled out an old Rogue Trader book. <laughs> rolled from, Rogue Trader from 1988 <laughs> or 1989 and found a mission within it. Yeah. So it. the the old Rogue Trader book, um, that was uh, great. <laughs> which is crazy, it's got this back section with all these plot hooks, right? And there's like a D100 table that then sends you off to sub-tables. You know, again, it's like Dungeons and Dragons from that area. Lots of tables and charts and stuff like that. The gamma world. But there there are something like, I don't know, 200 weird little plot twists in there. So we rolled one that was um, that we had to go in and get information. That the, the, the old Rogue Trader book described it that the governor's daughter had been kidnapped and that you had to go in and rough up locals for pieces of information and the other person wants to stop you from finding out where she is and stop you from doing that. Now, as it happens, this is just total, you know, uh, kismet. 
I had recently built a new warband around a theme of a guy who was like a nobleman. He's actually modeled as a king with a crown on a on a on a throne on a throne that's being carried around by an Atlas style man with stim injectors and all sorts of crazy. It's stuff very weird. It's very cool. weird and bizarre. <laughs> and on the back is a man playing chess for his life uh, against a servitor, and then he's got a royal household of retainers of you know assorted men at arms. They look very um, Renaissance. They've been all converted from a lot of the Forge World Empire uh, resin kits. Mm-hmm. And then they've been given like modern uh, Stormtrooper Scion uh, arms. And uh, also some of them have like a lot of Victoria Lamb conversion bits for shotguns. So they, they, they look kind of like dandies. They've got poofy sleeves and they're going to get painted fully as dandies. And as it turns out, the background I built for that guy originally was that he was a king or a Duke had gone mad because his son was kidnapped. And we just happened to roll that storyline. So the game that uh, we played today, we decided to have a number of NBC, NPC characters that we would roll for random directions that I would have to go and try to squeeze information out of them. And I would have to squeeze the information out of three of these people in order to find out the next step in the story and then eventually extricate my guys to the harbor where we had a boat waiting. And then um, George's people had to stop me from doing that. And I could stop them by either killing your warband or killing off the people that had the information. But only once he'd seen them talking to me. That's right. If, if, yeah, up until then, nobody was talking. But once I saw them talking, and I had to actually see them talking to you, Yes. then they became you know, targets, potential and, targets. And so, the, uh, George, you had um, a guy in power armor as your kind yeah, of... Yeah, I had inquisitor. like an inquisitor type guy with power armor. He had a bolt pistol and a power sword. He had a... Uh, Bodyguard, who was this really sort of extra tough two wound guy built that was a close combat specialist, built from converted from one of the new Age of Sigmar. From one of the blood, he's a blood reaver, basically. Blood reaver guy, yeah, with you know, he had beefy an axe and sword, fighty, yeah. And then a couple uh, stormtrooper scion kind of, I had, yeah, a couple of uh, yeah, Cadian uh, Tempestus looking guys mm-hmm. with special weapons. Uh, one had a plasma gun, one had a melta gun. I had a couple of servitors, also one with a plasma gun, one with a yeah. melta gun. Then I had a couple of snipers um, who were who who vexed me and were annoying me the entire game. <laughs> yeah, I, I put them in high, you know, crow nest type of positions. They had marksman ability. They also had rapid fire, so they could shoot two sniper shots every turn yeah. with extended ballistic skill, which you know just causes problems. And then I had I had in addition to my crazy mad archduke on his giant throne, I had um, <clears throat> two retainers that were lightly armed with shotguns. I had two heavily armored kind of guys, maybe carapace or heavy kind of style armor. One with a plasma gun, the other with a, a hell gun, who actually never shot a shot the whole game. He was out uh, roughing up locals for information. And then I also had a very bizarre conversion uh, that's like a medical servitor that's converted from a forgeable piece that almost looks like a mechanicus guy with snaky tails and a, dozens of little hands and yeah. surgical instruments and. The theory being that when the Archduke found his son, he might need medical attention. So therefore, we take a medical servitor with us. Also, in the backstory, I imagine that the Archduke only brings people along who have the same blood type as his son. So that if he has to, <laughs> you know, drain them, that, you know, there's no questions that and, it'll be a match immediately. And they're all equipped with heart plugs like House Harkonnen. <laughs> <It's> totally. Exactly. <laughs> uh, and I also had a, 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 a sniper kind of guy who wasn't as effective nor as good as yours necessarily. Um, and what else I, I, had, I think I had a, oh, and I, a, a, my new favorite conversion of all time, 
uh, I went to Aero Hobbies in Los Angeles, and they had a bunch of old, 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 old Citadel fantasy blisters. Mm-hmm. And they had an Empire guy with a um, a trumpet. Oh, I love this guy. He was like a musician. Yeah. And so what I did is I converted him with the new Adeptus Mechanicus Skitari legs, and he's carrying a, a pistol from the Rust Stalkers new set, and you know sorted other gear. But now he's kind of got this. this yeah, trumpet in one hand. A trumpet in one hand <laughs> and, and an auto pistol gun and in the other. auto pistol in the other. <laughs> and uh, we also gave him a name, uh, uh, Phineas Crumpkin. Phineas Crumpkin, yes. Herald of the Mad Duke. So, so we kind of wanted to go into this with, with a little bit of backstory and you know making the game not necessarily just about killing your guys, right? But really finding information. Finding information. And then if we can leave, I mean, it's, it would have been very possible to have played the game. It wouldn't unlikely, but it was very possible we could have played the game and never come to blows. True. And, and tried to sneak around, get the information we need, get off the board, and we would have considered it a win. And to me, that's a very different kind of style of play than maybe what you're seeing in tournament-oriented kind of 40K or even a lot of pickup 40K. You meet someone and... By need of convenience, we've never played before. Well, I've got a fifteen hundred point army. I do too. All right, let's play. This 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 involves a little more work and a little more. Also, more nuance in the way you could win. I mean, yeah. you could you could have stayed stealthy, and you actually had some stealthy weapons as I well. Tr- I tried for a long time to be stealthy, and then right. and then it failed me at the end. I, yeah, I one think. of my oh, I had one more guy. I had sort of a, a close combat guy with a lightning claw. That just was he terrified just, me. The he whole just game. running up at you. Well, you you took care. Of him. I plugged him in the head, but, with my, but he was able to me. to shriek in warning, and then that's when the, all the bullets started flying. Yeah, the, and that was fun. Like the first part, I would say the first third of the game was a stealth oriented game where you couldn't necessarily find me and shoot me. Right, I was, I was sort of moving towards, towards you. Me, you were aware was, that there's problems. Right, there's these strangers walking around town asking questions, but. But I hadn't seen anything happen yet, so yeah. the, I couldn't start really shooting. And then at a certain point, after I questioned a few of the locals and gotten a little bit of information, there came a, a kind of crux point in which uh, his his terrifying assassin guy with the lightning claw was going to find me out. And so I had to try to take him out in a, in a single round of combat so that he couldn't sound the alarm, yeah. and I failed. Yeah, you wounded me, he yelled He yelled out the alarm, and then that's when the sniper... The irony, came, irony being is that work. once the fire firing and the firefight began, George proceeded then to fire into that combat multiple times and killed his own <laughs> I guy. I killed my own guy. The guy who sounded the alarm. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? It's a tough world out there. It's a very... You, you know, signed up, you know that that could, that could happen. I've played a lot of games of Inquisimunda <laughs> with, an, with a couple other uh, war bands I've built over the years. And one of the ongoing jokes with our group of uh, Inquisimunda players is that um, in my, I have an Inquisitor Warband, and I have a Jokero monkey kind of guy. And the ongoing joke, and it just, I'm not trying to play him this way. It's just mm-hmm. the way the dice roll. Every single game that I've ever played with that stupid monkey, he's the guy who trips the alarm. <laughs> he's the guy who kind of knocks over the, you know, the, and makes yeah. a bunch of noise. He's the guy who critically fails and overheats and, you know, melts himself. And you, you start he's to so he's in essence he's Jar Jar Binks. He's completely the Jar Jar Binks of that warband. Right. And you start to question the 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 intelligence of bringing along a monkey and giving him um, high tech, <laughs> high powered energy weapons, but it's just such a funny conversion yeah. that I can't not take him every time. I, I, I had seen your Jokero, and it, it actually I went out and got one after I saw, after you saw it. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. It's just a bizarre, but that's see that to me is one of the funny things about playing these kinds of games is that you start to build these kinds of 
storytelling lineage. And particularly if you play these kinds of games regularly with a lot of the same people, it's very fun to kind of start to trade these stories. Uh, one of the one of the reasons that I kind of started getting interested in narrative oriented skirmish game is that I played a lot of 40k, and I, I'm not here to trash 40k by any means because without Games Workshop 40k, we wouldn't even be talking about this stuff. So it, it's I'm not I'm not interested in 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 talking about the meta or my disagreements with the meta or anything like that. But one of the things that I found kind of interesting is that when I started meeting a lot of the people involved at Games Workshop and became friendly, there is definitely a, a, I think less so now, but I think there was a fair criticism that sometimes Games Workshop seemed a little bit out of touch with its community. That being said, knowing some of these men personally, there's definitely a real emphasis in narrative kind of oriented kind of gaming. And there's a, there is a disconnect to some degree. I, I won't deny that it's there. But I, I think a lot of it is is because the game took on a life of its own. And, you know, in the beginning, it was small groups of guys who made this thing and kind of knew each other and played these kinds of adventure games. If you go look at the original Rogue Trader rulebook, there's a scenario in it. It's like the battle at something farm. And it's a very small, kind of oriented, kind of, you know, one-on-one kind of game. And and I think there's there's this aesthetic and style of play that's still really present in, in the people who create this stuff. I think that the tournament scene has kind of taken on a life of its own. Um, but I, I, what I found is that I played a lot of 40K, a tremendous amount of 40K. And, and I still do. I'm building right now as we speak in front of us is a couple towel crisis suits that I'm building for an escalation league right now. So I do like playing that. And I do play tournaments occasionally. I'm not not as fervently as... Yeah, you're no Arthur Shulsky. I'm no Arthur Shulsky. He loves <laughs> tournaments. And I love Arthur. I, he's a good friend of mine. Yeah. Um, but that being said, I, I found that it was very rare that I would sometimes walk away from 40K games and it would really stick with me later. Whereas when I played these kinds of smaller skirmish narrative story kind of driven games, I remember a lot of the funny things and story kind of elements from a lot of these games. I, I remember playing Traveler um, yeah. years and years ago in RPG. And yeah. uh, there was one instance where a guy um, said, I, I can't make this week, but I don't want to lose the experience points. Can you play my, my character for me? Yeah. And I said, sure. Uh, and I got to tell you, when I was younger, I was a, I was more of a jerk than I am today. So <laughs> we play this game, and our, our party is broke. And we're on this planet. We're kind of stranded. Yeah. So I had the idea. I was a nominal leader. To we're gonna rob a bank, but you're also playing another guy's character, so you have no, you don't have to suffer any of the repercussions for these bad Correct. decisions. So we go in the gun, we Next find the bank, we go in guns blazing. Sure. That guy goes in first, sure, gets shot, gets killed. I killed his character, <laughs> and then I use his body as a shield. Oh my god! <laughs> so Story, right? yeah, but, so we make our escape. Yeah. So but how telling is it that that here we how go? Many, I played that years in high school. After the fact, yeah, still, I played that in high school, and I remember a, it's a funny moment. That moment, and it was hilarious, and I was never trusted again by anyone else in my there, party. But whatever. There was, was there was there was once a game I played <laughs> with my younger brother many many years ago when we were kind of doing these improvised space Hulk get stretched outside of the space Hulk kind of games, and um, there was a, a bizarre miniature that we had collected. Who he was some sort of alien, but he had a really weird outfit, and I painted him in this grotesque, almost kind of clown kind of thing, and that was kind of like an era too, like when the Simpsons and Sideshow Bob, and so we called this guy Sideshow Bob because he had that kind of weird look, and 
so many bizarre kind of games involving trying to assassinate Sideshow Bob because he's spreading anti-imperial propaganda and, you know, all these, <laughs> like, crazy setups. Yeah. And and the fact that I still remember those games, that's, I think, to me, was the driving force behind maybe making more of a move in the last couple of years towards more of an individual painting style, smaller batches of figures, heavily, heavily converted. So a lot of the things that we talked about from the beginning are still present in my style in terms of really wanting to heavily convert a lot of what I do. Um, we recently just looked at some photographs of some earlier terrain I had done for Wild West terrain. And the thing that we had noticed is that it was stocked with all these little things like yeah, nice shelves thing. and barrels filled with apples with and produce, produce and that are tables and yeah. which you typically wouldn't find you know on a on a on a regular right. wargaming environment you know you're not worried if the 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 local market has apples. So we should get back to the game. So sure, just, sorry, to wrap things up. So um, <laughs> uh, in the game, basically. Your party went around and started roughing up the locals, yeah. and eventually uh, two of the locals gave up their information. But we, we we had determined that three had to give up the information for me to fulfill my 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 objective right. and allow me to get off the, the board. And meanwhile, um, some of the, the, the pool of available locals is shrinking. Right, because you've already rousted some. I've already rousted a bunch of them, and they're scattered across the board. So I kind of put into this bad position of... Two or three of them are on the far side of the board, and I have to just send a few scouting. Like, I can't use them to fight. As as George and I start getting into this heated kind of firefight in this kind of particularly dense part of the terrain, right. I can't use my full force because I have a couple guys trying to roust local yokels on the other side of the board to get right. information out of them. And so, I, and conversely, I am I have now taken this He's strategy. trying to kill them. I'm trying to kill the local citizens. So I can't get any of my information. Right. <laughs> right. So now every turn, give or take, I'm losing I'm losing a possible local to, to George, who's cruelly <laughs> just finishing them off. I, anyone I, yeah, I, I melted gun one of them. I can't fight him because right. a couple of them are, my guys are trying to seek out the remaining dudes. And uh, eventually there was one left one 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 guy left i made a tactical decision and i made the wrong one to kill the 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 local yokel that was furthest away from your war band and i should have kept him alive yes and to make me run circles around the board right and concentrated on the guy that was a little bit closer so this was like again it came down to a cinematic moment yeah so the cinematic moment which i thought was wonderful is that on, on like the third or fourth story of this very tall the tallest piece of terrain i have yeah it's about seven stories tall game scale wise it's it's a i would say maybe 24 inches tall it's even yeah it's tall. At least that's tall. And so it's, you know, in the middle of this giant skyscraper, there was, uh, you had a, a, a scion, a, a stormtrooper, who had been, one of the locals was up on the same floor as him. He'd been wounded. He'd been wounded He'd and been knocked wo- unconscious. Right. And he was armed with a plasma gun. He was armed with a plasma but, gun. But he's able to rouse himself and he gets up and he, he sees in front of him one of the last two citizens who could possibly yield this information. So if if George succeeds in, in getting the jump on me, he could kill the last one and I wouldn't have the information I need. Or I had to try to get him from a fairly long distance. So I had another guy, a plasma gunner, who was about... Full the fullest range, almost just twenty three like inches yeah, out of twenty four, like and got a single shot off, and managed to not only hit his guy through heavy cover, and and wound him, but we also managed to not hit the guy, not hit the local who was intervening. Right, we rolled for that. He could have done that. I could have toasted my own <laughs> information source. Right, I managed to hit his guy, knock him unconscious, uh, finish him off, 
and uh, ensure that I could get the information I needed. And by then, uh, the little meat grinder scenario we had in this dense part of town eventually kind of had started to wear itself down on, on George's side. Right. I had I had my sort of like warband leader um, with the power sword um, in conflict in, with the Archduke. In his throne. And he, he, he had been winning the, um, the confrontation so far. He'd been yeah. whittling down the Archduke's um, wounds. And then the Archduke had, had one good round. The Archduke had, had one, one good, good round, round where he proceeded to just inflict three wounds or something on you and just, and just, and just chop t- his t- head t- off. T- and once he chopped off the head of my warband leader, they the rest of my arm just went, uh, yeah. you know what? We don't get paid enough for this. So Necromunda has, has a very interesting um, uh, element to it about morale, which is different than 40K, right? which is that uh, it's called the bottle test. And so if you've never played Necromunda, the way that it works is once you've taken 25% casualties – you have to start taking the leadership test every turn. And if you fail that test, it's based off the higher leader, highest leadership in your group, in which case you're warband leader. Mm-hmm. Uh, but if you fail it, then um, you're going to bottle and the game is over. You essentially say, I've taken enough. It's a very different game than 40K in the sense that 40K, you can have games where you kill everything on the board. Necromunda is a game where you go in, you punch other guys for a while. It's kind of more like real life. If you've ever seen two people actually fight in real life, They'll land a few punches. They go, I don't know if I want to get too deep into this. It's rare to see something go to a full-on brawl where, you know, 10 people jump in and just beat each other senseless forever. I landed a punch or two. You know what, bro? Stops. I'm done. Somebody realizes. I'm gonna, I'm maybe I had too this. much to drink. I don't want to be part of this. So yeah, Necromunda has that. Necromunda has that where you can essentially bottle out in your band. Yeah. Kill Team also has a similar mechanic. Yeah, it does. Where you can, you can, you know, people morale break and they, it they, does. they decide to bolt instead. But once his, once his leader. Um, had, yeah, once had, I lost my head, that really, was, they um, snapped. They were gone. They were and so. so you, but to be fair, too. Yeah. A lot of his remaining guys had run out of ammunition. Too. Yeah, that was that was something I had learned. Yeah, my sniper ran out of ammo, so he he had to go down and physically get in the confrontation. Just take his rifle kill, and use it. Start as a killing club. citizens by headbutting them or something. Yeah, that's another nice thing about Necromunda. Uh, the longer that you play a game, there's no set time limit. There's no yeah, no number of turns. There's no number of turns. It goes on until it's done. it goes on until somebody bottles or right. until you achieve the goals of the mission. Right. Right. And one of the things that can happen in particularly long games of Necromunda is, is you know... When Everybody you, runs out of ammo. You can run out of ammo. <laughs> and so when you roll to hit Necromunda on a six, you hit, and then yeah. you have to take an ammunition check, and it's possible you can run out. And I've had that happen on a few games. Um, there's a guy... Two or three of my guys ran out of ammo. Ran out of ammunition. Yeah. I once played a game against a guy who had a, um, a very large, scabby, kind of like mutant-style game where he mm-hmm. just had just tons and tons and tons of guys. He had something like 15 guys in his mm-hmm. warband. And it went on so long that every single guy on both sides ran at the remaining guys ran at ammunition. And so it became clear like someone was either going to bottle or they were just going to have to just like literally start picking up, you know, broken <laughs> bottles and picking just up rocks know, and picking up rocks and hitting each other in the head. <laughs> and so it's a, it's a very tense game yeah. when you start running out because you start to, in fact, savvy, savvy Necromunda players, uh, when they start campaigning, start bringing backups. So it's kind of like that scene, you know, like in Mad Max when they, he comes up to the gates and they say, give up your weapons and he proceeds to take out 25 pistols out of every pocket. And, you know, yeah, there's a lot of that going on, you know? Yeah, he's got a shotgun. He's got an auto pistol. He's got a knife. He happens to have a sword as a backup and, and he's got a needle, or, you know? Yeah. There's a lot of that. But it was fun. And it was... It, it was, was fun. It was a it different was kind of game. Very different. Uh, there were different moments of tension that you don't get in 40K. In 40K... 
the tension moments are when you roll the dice. What what would you say? Because you've played a lot of forty k and not as much of this style of game. Yeah. Uh, coming into it, what did you like about it? What did you dislike about it? Uh, I, I first of all, I like the three dimensional aspect of it. So you were you as a you had to put yourself in the role of the model and look around to see where your shots were from, where your cover was coming from. It is true line and of sight in a th- way that's different than forty k. Yes, you had to think way more spatially. Than you do in 40k, which is much more. I, I noticed that you. I noticed that um, you had a moment that 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 kind of seemed to flummox you a little bit, which is that you 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 notice that in 40k you can kind of move and then declare charges and it's a random charge yeah, distance. Yeah, yeah. In in Necromunda, you have to make those charge moves at the beginning of your of your turn. Yeah, and so there was this kind of like dead man's alley kind of like crunching point on the board that was very hard for both of us to get through. Yeah, we were. Yeah, and you constantly kind of like would get your guy a little bit forward. Oh, I think I'm going to charge, and then realize you didn't have enough movement to do it. Right, and then you'd step back and then kind of try to do it again. And neither side until the very end kind of wanted to cross that no man's land. Right, um, so that seemed to be a little different for you. That was very different for me. I had to get used to the to the movement and assault aspects of it. Uh-huh. Um, and that just comes with time. The more I would play a game like and what this. About, and what about um, things that maybe you disliked or you maybe found confusing or things that you would want to do differently if you were to do it again? Uh, if I were to do it again, I would definitely uh, have more backup in terms of like what would happen if I lost, if I ran out of ammo. I mean, <laughs> having your melted guy run out of ammo, really the waste of points at that point. Um, yeah. And my, have my sniper run out of ammo. So I would figure out, I basically equip them with more stuff. Also, um, you make a decision as to, I think, what kind of party you want to have. So I would, um, focus on either close combat or, or shoot. Um, That's true. I don't think, I think that in that game, it doesn't necessarily, I, I think it's hard at that, that granularity of having, let's say seven to 10 guys to, to, to try covering all aspects. Yeah. And I, and I think I was trying to do that a little too much. So I sort of divided my strategy and then, and the result it led to not great results, you know. Yeah. Yeah. I noticed that in that game, the one of the, when people play that game, and if they play it really, really well, like there's a couple guys in Los Angeles we play with that are terrifyingly good at that game, mm-hmm. and also just at judging distances and, and just yeah. eyeballing, like in a really freakish. Because it's one thing to to measure, just measure and know what a foot looks like, but there's something about the verticality of that game mm-hmm. that starts, you know. Granted, we all went and you know hopefully did uh, basic, you know. Um, Geometry. Yeah, geometry and know how to figure out what that is. But when you're actually looking at it, it's not what you... No, you, that's, you have to think differently. Yeah, it's always, oh man, I'm, I'm a couple inches shy of where I thought right. I would be see, in order see, to achieve you were, this. you were more like Kirk in Star Trek Two, and I was more like Khan. Yes. And I wasn't thinking in three dimensions. Yes, that's true. See? That's true. Um, so I, I <laughs> that's that's an interesting part of that game. And I think it's... um. I think that's one of the interesting, if you play, that's why I joke, but if you're not playing Necromunda vertically, you're playing it wrong. <laughs> okay, I think that's a very place to end. Yeah. All right, well, Jonathan, I want to I want to thank you. We uh, Really great uh, conversation about uh, terrain and painting, yeah. and a great conversation introducing us all to Necromunda and Inquisimunda. Yeah, and keep, keep your eyes peeled. Uh, it's it's definitely coming, and, oh. and, and that's not even me conjecture. Games Workshop has said that Necromunda is coming. And exactly when I can't actually say I, I know things, but I won't say uh, just out of deference to them. But it is coming, and so it's a great game. There's no better time to check it out than now. I guarantee that once it does come out, everybody's going to be playing it. It's it's a great way to play 40k and and get into the hobby and doing a small amount and without feeling that stress of having to build a gigantic army right away. 
it's a fun way to kind of get into the hobby and uh, it's an interesting game well you inspired me i'm gonna go work on a heavily converted warband very cool all right well thank you Okay, so that's our show. Thanks for listening to episode 13 of the Eye of Terror podcast. We love to hear from you guys. We've been getting more and more email and more and more people dropping by our Facebook page. So please do that if you haven't. Please like and subscribe via iTunes or SoundCloud to the Eye of Terror podcast. If you want to send us any email, we are the Eye of Terror podcast at gmail.com and we'll try and get back to you as soon as we can. But thanks for listening. With that, I'm George. And uh, I'm Alec. And we play 40K. See you soon.